So you may be seated for a moment. Um, thank you for being here on this cold day. Uh, I don't mind cold weather as much uh, when it gradually does so, but when it goes from, hey, uh, it's warm enough to run outside this morning to it's going to snow and all the teachers are crying for a snow day tonight, I don't, I don't adjust very well. So uh, I'm wearing this sweater and I'm already hot, so I, I think I've made a bad choice, but it's whatever. Um, I'm thrilled to be here this morning. Uh, as you guys know, or, or most of you know, I'm Pastor Justin, filling in for Pastor Eric, who is in Haiti. Um, he is with Todd Hazel, uh, still trying to finalize the last step of the adoption of Wiesbens. Um, we are still very hopeful that they will bring him home in this week uh, sometime. They have a meeting scheduled with the guy they have to meet with tomorrow. So just keep praying for them, praying not only for safety for their travels, but just that things would work out, that God would move in the hearts of the people that have to sign the documents for this child to come home. We've been praying for that for years now, and it may finally happen. So just continue to pray for them. Uh, but again, thank you for being here. And as Brian said, uh, you are going to hear a lot about Jesus today, and we would have it no other way. We think that there's no other reason to gather uh, this morning. So along those lines, if you would, uh, there should be a Bible close to you if you don't have one. If you don't own a Bible, take that with you as our gift to you. But if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 4. We will be continuing our sermon series, King and Kingdom. And we will be looking at the temptation of Jesus. And I would ask you guys, as I read this passage, if you would stand with me out of, out of reverence for God's word, and I'll read the passage. It's Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. It says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it says what it says uh, and that we um, have no business changing it. And this morning I pray that uh, as I bring the word, as I, as I preach this morning, that you would move me out of your way. Uh, I am simply a sim sinful man uh, that you have called to bring this message here today. And I pray that your spirit would speak through me, that if there is anything that um, I even think about saying that is outside of your will, that you, that you would stop me from saying it. Um, and I just pray that you would be with the hearts and minds of everyone here who uh, is listening, that they would hear you speaking, that they would remove distraction from their minds, remove distractions and idols from their heart, and focus solely on who you are, what you have done, and what you are doing in this place. We love you, Jesus, and it is in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, now if you've been in church much or at all, you've probably at least heard a short version or heard this text specifically that Jesus was tempted. Um, and in, in Hebrews 4.15, it tells us that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are, and yet he was sinless. 
Now, this does not mean that he was tempted by the exact same sins that we are tempted by. He, he wasn't tempted to look up porn on the internet. He wasn't tempted to eat too much fast food. Those things didn't exist. But he was tempted in the same ways that we are. He is tempted by sexual sin. He was tempted by gluttony. He was tempted to lie. He was tempted to do all of these things that we are still tempted to do today. So we have to understand that even though this is the narrative of Jesus' temptation... And even though the Bible doesn't specifically tell us any other time that Jesus was tempted using those words, we have to assume that there are other times where Jesus was tempted. We look at Jesus doing many signs and many miracles in Scripture. We see him at one point heal ten men with leprosy. And only one of them comes back to thank him. I don't know if Jesus is exactly like me. I would have been tempted to give the other nine their leprosy back and be like, well, sorry guys, you didn't come back and thank me. Here you go. He didn't do that. He also purposely chose the least of these to be his disciples, tax collectors and men of no renown, fishermen, people that had no power, no prestige, no apparently brains half the time. They, they weren't real smart, but I, I fully understand that he did that on purpose to show his glory forth, but there had to have been times he was tempted to smack them upside the head or just look at them and be like, guys, seriously? And he kind of does that in scripture a little bit, but he, apparently he does it in a non-sinful way, not the way I would have done it. But there are, there are times where he had to have been tempted to sin. When he was on the cross, it had to have been tempting to use the power at his disposal to take himself down from the cross, to skip all of that pain, to skip all of the beating and the ridicule and all of the things that he had to go through. And yet, we see him not sin in any of those circumstances so that he could fulfill the will of God and fulfill what he was called to do, specifically being the cross. But you see, there's a big difference here between, between temptation and sin, and we will look at that a little bit today. But Jesus was willing to suffer through all of that, to fight temptation his whole life, and to lose in the short term. Okay, The cross seemed like a loss, right? The, the people that were killing him on the cross thought they were winning, right? They thought, oh, we got him. And then three days later, he was able to win in the long term. And he was willing to go through that to allow people to think they had won, to allow people to think they had defeated Christianity so that he may return and upon his resurrection come and set up his eternal kingdom. But what we have to understand is that Jesus knew, and we know looking back as well, that if he had messed up in any small way, whatever the smallest sin you think there is uh, to do, to commit, if he had done that, the whole plan would have been derailed. Even the smallest one, we must have a perfect Savior. We must have a sinless Savior. We cannot have one that had any sin about him. And we see him resisting temptation specifically in this story, but just know that this was a lifelong battle. This was something Jesus had to suffer or had to struggle through his whole life because he was fully human. There were times where he was going to be tempted to sin, just as we see here in Scripture. And yet we must remember every time we think about Jesus being tempted, that he did not succumb to any of those, even once. Not one time did he just toe the line and go a little bit too far. Not one time did he commit even the smallest sins. However, here in, today in Matthew, we're going to look at the, really the, I mean, it's in Luke as well, but really the only specific story about Jesus being tempted. Uh, and again, it was paralleled in Luke, but it's the same story. It's the same occurrence. And this seems to be a very face-to-face, kind of hand-to-hand battle between him and Satan, him and the devil. And 
part of this, to understand this, we have to look at the context here. We have to look at what just took place. Last week, Pastor Eric preached about Jesus' baptism. And what happened on Jesus' baptism? He was being baptized to fulfill all righteousness, right? He was being baptized, and then when he came up out of the water, what happened? The heavens were opened up, and God specifically spoke and said, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the very next word in Scripture is then. It's the first word of chapter 4. Now, we don't know if that was immediate or instantaneous, or if there were days or weeks or hours in between here. But we do know that there was nothing worth writing down, or he would have written it, right? Matthew didn't write anything in between God is well, or this is my son, I am well pleased, welcome to the desert, welcome to the face. So apparently it was either instantaneous or nothing else took place in the midst of that. But we see here that Jesus is led by the Spirit, so this was all still part of God's plan. He was led by the Spirit out into the desert to be tempted by the devil. But why now? Why at this point? Why did the devil try right now? Why was he so ready to attack? This is seemingly, again, this is the only time we see Jesus and the devil, a specific story of G the devil tempting Jesus and trying to get him to falter. So why now? And I think the answer to that question is, is actually twofold. One is because of the aforementioned humanity of Jesus. Jesus was fully human. Yes, he was fully God. But he was also fully human. He hurt. He cried. He stubbed his toe and it hurt his toe. He did all of the things that we would do as a human except for sinning. And he was just been told who he is. He has just been told by God, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. See, Jesus is getting ready to embark on the hardest three years of ministry anybody has ever experienced. Ministry is difficult on any level, okay? It, it, it's messy. You get to know people in some of their best times, some of their worst times, and, and it is difficult. But nobody that has ever done ministry in any form has ever experienced what it feels like to preach the message that you came to die for the salvation of the very people that were putting you to death. Nobody's experienced that, and Jesus knows that he is about to embark upon that. God knows that Jesus is about to embark upon that. And as a human... Jesus would have needed to be reminded of his identity. He would have needed, in weak moments when, the sin, when sin is tempting Jesus, he would need to remember, I'm the son of God. God is well pleased with me now, just as he was on the day that he said it out loud. He is as well pleased with me now as the day of my baptism. You see, he can look back at this time and say, no, even though the devil's trying to convince me otherwise, I am God's son. I am who is pleasing to God. I am the sinless Savior. And he can look back to this time in the desert where he, where he battled the devil specifically and say, he's with me now just as he was with me then. Secondly, I also think that the timing of this is perfect because this is the same way we are tempted, right? This is the same timing when we are tempted. The devil is going to attack us most as Christians when we are progressing in the faith when we are asking the right questions, learning, when we are being fruitful, when we are evangelizing, when we are taking steps in the right direction, the devil is going to want to stop that, right? When we are activating our God-given faith is when the devil is going to want to come most against you and keep you from doing so. Now, as most of you uh, are aware, I, I, work at a, I work at Hope House with, with Brian Lewis, the fill-in church member guy today, and we 
have recently begun a program living facility for uh, men who struggle with drug addiction and alcohol, um, or really any issues, but those are the main ones. Uh, some of you who were at the New Year's Eve party at our house would have met a few of them, um, but it is a year-long program. Uh, they live under the same roof. They, they have, there's two bedrooms. They share bedrooms. Um, they, they have bunk beds. They don't share a bed, just the bedrooms. So they live in the same room. They live in the same house for 12 months, um, and we're a month into this endeavor, Actually, not even quite a month, and I'm exhausted. I'm just going to be honest with you. Uh, I'm sure Brian would echo that sentiment. Um, I go home every day pretty, pretty mentally and emotionally drained. The phrase, every day is an adventure, is putting it mildly uh, in this particular setting. And there's definitely been some tension. Some between staff and residents, some between re other residents and, and residents. Um, however, I don't, I don't know how to explain it in short. I only have a limited amount of time up here. God is definitely moving in that house. He's making people ask questions they've never asked before. Some of them are reading the Bible for the first time, literally the first time ever in their life, and they're just asking anything, they're just anything. One, yesterday, or Friday, I'm sorry, a guy said, hey, I have a question. Can you just tell me what Genesis is about? Um, <laughs> not in 10 minutes like you want me to. I, we'll go through that through the year. But he just wants to know what the Bible is about. He's asking questions he has never, ever asked. In the midst of all of this chaos, in the midst of this mess, and in the midst of these guys getting to know each other and us getting to know them and all of those kinds of things, God is moving. Two separate times last week, two separate individuals came to me and said, Hey, I have a question. What does it mean to be a Christian? Uh... <laughs> If, if you guys are experiencing easier evangelism than that, I want to hang out with you guys because that sounds awesome. But uh, this is the biggest watermelon that God could ever pitch to me, right? Well, let me tell you what it means to be a Christian, and then I can share the gospel with them. They hear the gospel every single day. But there's still tension. There's still times where we have to kind of separate guys from these petty arguments that they're having that wouldn't bother me or you, but for some reason are really bothering them and, and causing them to argue. Two guys last week couldn't stand to be around each other. Just couldn't stand it. And in a house where they live for 24 hours a day, and there's only four or five residents at a time, um, it, it's, it's tough to avoid each other. It's what, what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real for all you real world fans. And anybody laughing, stop watching MTV, you bunch of sinners. All right, but I had to sit down with both of them and tell them, look, this is the devil. This is why he's attacking now. You're asking the right questions. You're at, God is drawing you and, and trying to activate your faith and, and get you to believe the gospel and getting you to uh, ask the right questions and, and progress in. I don't know if they have a faith, but it, it's at least progressing to get them to have a faith. They are growing. They are, like I said, asking questions. They are learning every single day what it means to be a Christian. And the devil does not want that. To happen for any of them but the thing is is being removed from their normal lives the devil can't use drugs anymore he can't use alcohol anymore he can't use females anymore we have removed them from those settings so what does he do he he comes up with a different way of attack he just causes tension between residents to where they will fight with each other over petty stuff that does not matter in the long run, even a little bit. And they will even, after it's over, go, yeah, I don't know why I was so mad. I can tell you why. 
because the devil is trying to crash this down. He is trying to take you away from what God is drawing you to do. He is trying to mess up what is going on. Anything to distract you from the truth, anything to make you question or ignore the movement of God that is clearly happening in that house. And this is what Satan does. When God is moving, he tries a new way of approach, a new temptation. Oh, that one's not working anymore? Let me try this one. And this is what Jesus had to go through. This is what we have to go through. This is Jesus identifying with us. Whenever God is showing up clearly in our lives, that is when the devil is going to mount his strongest attack. He doesn't have to sink a already sinking ship. It's when your boat or ship is moving through the water, he's going to try to poke holes in it and try to make it sink. If it's already sinking, he can just leave that alone and let it sink on its own, right? But the, Jesus is going through what we go through. The king has stepped down from his throne to be one of us, to go through life like one of us, to spirit, experience things the way we experience them, to be tempted the same way we have been tempted in order to set up his eternal kingdom. And the only way that we can be invited in is if he lives a sinless life, going away from temptation, not listening to the devil when he tries to lie to him, so he can identify with us in our humanity, but not identify with us in our sin because he was sinless. This is the only way. But we see here Satan tempts Jesus in three very specific ways. And at first glance, they may seem unrelated. They may seem like three just totally, well, this is what the devil thought of. But I would contend that they are basically all three the exact same temptation. And I'll, I will explain. First, we see in verse 2 that Jesus has fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then we see some of the most obvious scripture in all of the Bible. It says, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and he was hungry. Thanks for the late-breaking news. He didn't eat for 40 days. I understand he's probably hungry. But we see this mentioned, and we usually will flippantly just read over it. Oh, he fasted 40 days. Cool, he was hungry. What's next? But this is very important. It once again emphasizes the humanity of Jesus. He fasted for 40 days, not as a God who is impervious to hunger or thirst, but as a man who would have wanted something to eat. He was tempted not as a God who is impervious to being tempted by this world, but as a man filled with the Holy Spirit and who had to legitimately fight against the wiles of the devil. This wasn't not tempting to Jesus. That's not how he was able to do it. It was because the Spirit was leading him. The Spirit gave him the power to resist the temptation. But see, we read over that and we think, oh, of course he was hungry. Well, yes, because he was human. So Satan tries to exploit that. And he first, he hearkens back to the baptism, right? He says, if you are the Son of God, this is not the devil questioning whether he is the Son of God. This is the devil affirming, yes, I understand you are the Son of God. And if you are, it'll be easy for you to turn those stones into bread and then eat them. And then you won't be hungry anymore. And the thing is, is the devil even understands that Jesus does, in fact, have that power. He can, in fact, turn the stones into bread. And my question is, would it have really been wrong to do that? He was hungry. He was done fasting. It's not wrong to eat when you're hungry. It's not a sin. It's a sin to overeat. It's not a sin to eat. So would it have been such a big deal if Jesus had actually done this? And the big deal here is not what the devil is asking Jesus to do, but how he is asking them to do it. He wants to replace God in Jesus' life. He wants to be at the place and the role of father to Jesus. Because what does a father do? He provides. He wants to be the one that provides a way for Jesus to eat. 
when it's God's role to do that. And that's why God, or Jesus answers that way. He tells Satan that God is my father. He provides, and in him I have all that I need. Whether I get bread or not, I, I have the word of God. I have everything that comes from the mouth of God. He points back to and says, God is my father. He provides, not you, Satan. Now, secondly, the devil takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple. So the tallest part of the city, basically. He says to Jesus, throw yourself off and the, the angels will bear you up. They will save you from, to, from death. They will save you from hitting your foot on a stone. They will save you. And the thing is that this is actually true. Psalm 91, 11, and 12 says these exact words. Satan is using scripture to try to twist it to make Jesus, just like he did with Adam and Eve. He twisted what God said to make them believe it meant something else. And this is, we'll come, we'll come back to that. The sa Satan can tell you true things. It's just that his motives are different, but we'll come back to that. So Jesus could have flung himself off. The angels would have saved him. Why would that have really been tempting, though? And here, at this point, the, Jesus is well aware of what is going on. He is well aware of what he is getting ready to face, where he's going to minister to people, performing signs, performing wonders, doing all of these great things, going to the cross and dying for our sins, and th yet there will still be so many people that don't believe, so many people that just will not accept that he is the, the Messiah that was sent from all of pro Old Testament prophecy, that he is the one that has come. But if he throws himself off the temple and a bunch of angels swoop down to grab him and lower him to the ground, that'll, that'll solve the problem, won't it? It'll be hard to deny that if you see that. If I see someone jump off a building and angels come, I'm going to think something, something's up. I'm going to at least investigate it. And this would have been in front of hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people because he's in, at the temple. The devil didn't take him to some far-off mountain where nobody would have seen it. He takes him to the middle of the city where people would have been all over the place. If Jesus had jumped off, that would have ended the entire Messiah, not Messiah debate. And more and more and more people would have believed in Jesus. That would have been very tempting for Jesus because he could have avoided this whole cross mess, right? Could have avoided all the pain and the beatings and the ridicule and all the laughter that, no, you're not the Messiah, you just think you are. Oh yeah, did you not remember I jumped off the temple and the angels came down? So, <laughs> gotcha. But he, he doesn't do that. And why does he do, why, why is Satan tempting him in this way? And again, it goes back to Satan is trying to be in the role of father. Because what does a father do? He protects. Gentlemen, if you hear something in your house later tonight, and it is something foreign to you, and you think someone else may be in your house, do not nudge your wife and go, hey, go check that out. It is the father, husband, whatever, the male's role to protect. You need to go check it out. Now, if you want her as backup, fine, bring her along, but you need to take the point and go check out what that is because it is the role of the father to protect. But Satan is wanting to take that role here. He is one, once again trying to join, or jump into the throne where only God the Father can sit and to use the promise that God will protect Jesus to test him to see if God really will do what God really says. And Jesus puts it back to God here, back in his proper place, and he said, God's promises are not meant to, to test, they are meant to trust. If God says he'll do it, I don't have to jump off to prove that he'll do it. He'll do it. I can stay right where I'm at because God has promised that he will protect me. I don't have to jump off to see if God is telling the truth. So we do not put God to the test. Thirdly, 
Satan takes Jesus to the top of a mountain, and he shows him the whole world, what, is it, what it seems. We don't know if this was some mystical vision or anything like that, but it, for the first time in Jesus' human life, yes, Jesus created all of this. He's seen it all being made from nothing. He was there at creation. But in his human eyes, this is the first time he's probably been a few miles from his house. He's probably not seen any of this. So this would have been very awe-inspiring. It even says that the Satan showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. So it, it's very clear here that Jesus probably would have been like, whoa, this is awesome. <laughs> I, <laughs> I did this. But in his human eyes, it would have maybe been the first time he had seen any of it. And then the devil drops it on him. He says, if you will fall down and worship me for just one second, won't take much effort, just one second of worship, I'll give you all of this. Now, a couple things here. I don't believe uh, that we were talking about ownership here. Uh, the devil, we'll discuss here in a second, is the, the god of this world, as the scripture kind of puts it, the prince of the power of the air. But it doesn't mean he owns the world. God is still in charge. God is still placing things in his due time. He is still doing all that what God does. But we do see, because of sin, that Satan has dominion over the earth. Sin has, has come in from the Garden of Eden, and it has given Satan some dominion over the earth. Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, just so you all know, I'm not making this up. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, this does not mean that Satan has complete control of the world and he can just run amok and do whatever he wants. We even see in the story of Job in the Old Testament that he basically has to ask permission from God. Hey, can I go get this guy? And God says, okay, yes, you can. But until he, if God had said no in that moment, one, there would have been one less book of the Bible, but two, the devil wouldn't have been able to do anything. But Satan is saying that I, I will give up the power God has granted me, the boundaries God has set for me, I will give up even that. I won't mess with people, I won't lie to people, I won't influence people, I won't make people do bad things. I will leave humanity alone if you will but worship me. And Jesus does not respond here that it's not yours to give, Satan. Or he doesn't respond with, well, you wouldn't live up to your end of the bargain anyway. You're trying to trick me. I think Jesus fully believes that Satan will do this. And that he'll live up to his end of the bargain. Because at that point, Satan would have won. He wouldn't have had to mess with anybody else. There would be no Savior. There would be no Messiah. Because, again, we must have a sinless Savior. We must have a perfect sacrifice and at this, that point, if Jesus had worshipped him, we wouldn't have that any longer. So Satan wouldn't have any work to do anyway. So it's not that Jesus doesn't believe him. But I do think that it's very obvious we can see why this would have been tempting, why this would have been a good thing if, if somehow we could get Satan to leave everybody alone. That would have been very tempting, even for Jesus in, in this time. But yet again, the devil is trying to take the place of God the Father. Inheritance is the job of the Father, especially in this time. You inherit from your Father. And the devil is trying to say, if you will just worship me, I'll give you all this stuff. I will give it to you. You will inherit it from me. He's trying to fill the role of God in Jesus' life. Provision, protection, 
inheritance. These are all jobs of the Father. These are all jobs that God would have done for Jesus, 100%, so he doesn't have to look for them anywhere else. And Jesus, once again, he quotes Deuteronomy, and he says, um, he knows Satan has lost. That's why he says, be gone, Satan. But he quotes Deuteronomy, and he, and he knows that he has won the battle. Satan knows that he is defeated, and he leaves. This was his only hope. If he could just get Jesus to mess up one time, just one small little something that he can hold against Jesus, then the whole plan is gone. The whole plan is derailed. All of salvation, there won't be any. There will be no one to turn to when we sin to make up for that sin because Jesus would no longer be perfect. So he throws his best punches here. Nothing works. So he leaves utterly defeated. Now a couple things I want to point out here about Satan and the way he tempted Jesus uh, that I think parallel to our own lives. I believe that Satan is still trying to tempt us all in the same way. His, his one and only trick is to get you to take God off the throne of your life and put anything else there. He doesn't even care if he sits there. It's not like he's trying to steal God's seat himself. He's just trying to let, get you to put anything in that seat other than God. Okay? It doesn't have to be Satan. I'm not saying you have to worship Satan. But if you put anything in the throne where God only deserves to sit, that is making an idol, and that is what Satan is trying to do. Something we have to realize is that Satan is not always the little red guy running around with the pitchfork. And for some reason, if y'all know, the weird goatee, he's always got the, the weird mustache. Like every cartoon version of Satan, he's always got like the French, I don't know if they're trying to say something about French people or not, but he's always got like the French mustache and the little goatee. He's not that guy. He doesn't show up that way. Sometimes he's the guy offering you a job or a promotion. Sometimes he, is, he comes in the form of money, but he calls it providing for your kids doesn't matter if you're rich, you're providing for your kids. You're doing a good thing, right? I'm not telling you that you should give all your money away. We're not getting into that today. Sometimes he comes in the form of arrogance and the fact that you have a great marriage. Sometimes he comes in the form of arrogance that your children are the best behaved kids anywhere. John 8, tells us that Satan is the father of lies and there is no truth in him. But this does not mean that he will not say true things and twist them to get you off the right path. He said, he said all true things to Jesus, right? He used scripture at one point. We know scripture is true. We know that if Jesus had jumped off, that God would have saved him. So that was true. Satan used a true thing. It's just his motives that were untrue. It is his motives that makes him the father of lies. It is not necessarily just the words that he speaks. Sometimes what we have to really open our eyes to and realize is that sometimes Satan can be our biggest cheerleader. If he can find something that you want more than God, he'll give it all to you. It doesn't matter what it is. If you will take anything and remove God from the throne of your life and put that thing there, he will gladly give you all of that. You want great kids? He'll make sure they're the best behaved kids in town. You want a great marriage? Cool. As long as you want it more than God, I'll give it to you. Money, sex, power, prestige, whatever you want. Anything that will take God off of that throne and you put it there. Here's one that maybe you don't even think about. You want to be the best pastor that has ever lived? I'll give it to you. As long as you want that. As long as you want that status, that prestige, that power more than you want God. You want to lead hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to Jesus? I'll let you do that as long as you're lost in the process. 
as long as you want that status more than the problem. I'll, I'll attack them later with something else, but I'll attack you now with the status of I'm the best evangelist that has ever lived. He'll give you just about anything you want as long as it is taking God off the throne, putting something else there. You see, just as God can use sinful men to fulfill his will, we see this at the cross. They're sinful men. Even though that was God's plan to put Jesus to death, he was still using sinful men to complete his will. Romans 8, 28, one of our favorite verses around here is, God will work all things for his glory and the good of those who love him, right? So he'll take bad, bad stuff. He'll take stuff that we don't want to go through. He'll take sinful men's bad intentions and twist them around for his will to make his will come about. Well, Satan is trying to do the exact opposite. He wants to take what God has meant for good and his glory and to make that our God instead. To take good things. A good marriage is a good thing. I'm not telling you <laughs> to go have a bad marriage. But don't put having a good marriage on the throne where God is supposed to be. And Satan wants to do that. Satan wants to take the good things in your life and make them your God. And the thing is, he won't do this by turning the whole world upside down either. We would notice that, right? If I go back there, as hot as it is in here, and turn the thermostat up 10 degrees, somebody in here would probably notice, right? The fans would start coming out, we'd take our jackets off, whatever. But if I go back there and turn it up one degree, do you think anybody would notice? Or turn it down one degree? I don't think anybody would notice. Same, by the same token, if you're traveling around the world, in, obviously in a plane, or a hot air balloon, or whatever you want to get in to fly around the world. But if you start in Washington, D.C., and your goal is to fly around the world and land back in Washington, D.C., if you are off one degree on your compass, you'll land in Boston, which is 435 miles away. One degree. That's what Satan is trying to do. He's not trying to crash your plane. He's just trying to get you to land in a different city, right? He's not trying to turn your world upside down. You would notice that. He just wants to alter your trajectory just enough that he will take your good intentions and make the effects of those good intentions something that you never wanted or something that God doesn't want. That's, that's his intention is to just, just get you off path just enough and then by the end of it, you start thinking, how did I get here? This is not where I intended to go. He tried this with Jesus. He is trying this with us. And I think we should all be constantly aware of this so that we may resist the wiles of the devil. We must never forget that the very same power that Jesus used to resist the devil in this narrative is the same power that is within us. It is the same spirit that empowers us to withstand the devil. It is the same power in both cases. Jesus just used it perfectly where we still mess up, but it is the same power that we can tap into and resist these temptations. If you are a believer, the Holy Spirit is in you and that power is at your disposal. But here's the real beauty of this story about Jesus' and Jesus's temptation. And this is what I want all of you to really get today. We had to do all of that, <laughs> what I just did, to get here. The story is not about us. The story is not about you. The story is not about me. And I know what you're thinking. No kidding, Pastor Justin. It tells us it's about Jesus. But it's also not a blueprint of how to avoid temptation. It is not a how-to guide or a self-help book for, called Satan for Dummies that we can, oh, this is how he does it? Well, I got it all figured out now. That it, I think we can draw that from this text, okay? I think we have clear application in that sense, but I do not think 
that that is the primary motive of this text. I don't think that is the primary message that we have here. I think at best that is secondary. This story, along with all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. It is not about him teaching us how to resist temptation. It is a story about how he resisted for us in our place. He resisted all temptation because he knows that we can't resist all temptation. He was obedient in our place. He defeated the devil because we are powerless to do so. He lives sinless because we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. This is a direct depiction of how Jesus lived our life for us. It's not an accident that it says that Jesus was tempted in all the ways that we are tempted. It is so that we can, instead of saying, well, look how I resist temptation, look how Jesus resisted temptation. And then by placing our faith in him, we can now have his obedience. We can now have his sinlessness. We can now have his perfection laid upon us. I think it is always dangerous to read a biblical story and insert yourself into the text. I'm not saying that the Bible is not full of life application. We do that here when we preach. We want to apply the Bible to our lives. I do not think that is the primary goal of Scripture being written down. David and Goliath, that is not written just so you can, oh, I'm David and Goliath is my sin. I must fight against sin, but it's, it's bigger than me, but I can beat it. I guess that's some form of application, but that is not the story. Jesus is David, or David is Jesus, however you want to say that in that text. It is pointing to that even though it looks like he can't win, Jesus, the suffering Messiah, comes in and wins the battle. The story of Moses and the Egyptians is not about how you get saved and you lead people out of the bondage of sin. And y'all may laugh in your heads, but I've heard that used as the application. Again, fine, that is what we're supposed to do. As saved people, we are supposed to go to lost people and say, hey, this is your sin. This is how God saves you from that sin. Follow me as I follow Christ. But that is not the primary reason that that story is in the Bible. You see, when, when the story involves Jesus, it's even more dangerous to insert yourself into the story and act like you are Jesus. Just go ahead and assume that that's never the case. The good Samaritan, it's not you. You're the guy dead in the ditch if he didn't come by, right? You're the guy that needs help. Jesus is the good Samaritan. He's the one that saved you when you didn't really do anything for him. He didn't really need or have to save you. He is the good Samaritan, not you. The sinful woman talking to Jesus at the well. You're not Jesus in that story going to lost people telling them about living water. You are the one in need of the living water. You are the one who needs to listen to Jesus' message that if you will just drink his living water, you'll never be thirsty again. The prostitute, Jesus saves by telling people not to throw stones at her. I'm not going to tell you what role you play because that will be the only thing you remember. What happened at church today? Oh, Pastor Justin called me a prostitute and we left. That was it. That's not, that's not the, but you get the point. You're not Jesus in that story either. Let's just put it that way, okay? The point is we have to get that all of Scripture is about one single story. And that story is we are all sinners with absolutely no way of reconciling ourselves to God. And we need a substitute. We need a stand-in. We need a perfect sacrifice. We need a Savior. We needed someone who could stand up to the devil because we cannot. This is a story about how a king humbled himself enough to be one of us in every possible way, yet sinless, yet perfect. 
It is the story of a king who inaugurated his kingdom only, only to seemingly give it up at the cross so that it, he may be resurrected and it may last forever and then he can invite us in. Because without the cross and resurrection, we have no way of getting in. The story is, I'm not saying it can't do this, but this story is not to encourage us. You can resist the devil. It's to tell us that we can't, but Jesus has. It is so that we will marvel at this king, to marvel at his humility, to marvel at his obedience, to marvel at his mercy and his grace, and to marvel that even though he had the power to save himself from all of that suffering, he went through it to fulfill the plan that God had for him because he knew that he was called to do that, to make a way for us that we could not make for ourselves, to marvel that he now freely gives all of that to us through faith in Jesus. We don't have to earn this. We don't have to go do it on our own merits. He freely gives us this mercy and grace that he earned by living perfectly. Not by giving us the power to live perfectly, but by giving us his obedience, his sinlessness. This is a specific rendering of his temptation, not so we can look at it and see how he did it and learn how he did it, but so that we can see that he has already done it for us. Yes, we need to be reminded that the same power Jesus used in his fighting the devil is the same power that we have. I think that is great to be reminded of that. Yes, we need to be reminded that even Jesus used scripture to resist the devil. He didn't just say his own opinions. He used the word of God to resist the devil, and that is an application that we need to know the word of God so we can resist the wiles of the devil. I think that's great that we can get that from here. It is a reminder that we should strive to be more holy because Christ is holy. We see that in other scriptures. Yes, we strive for holiness. Yes, we strive for perfection. As Christians, if you're not striving to be perfect, then some, something, the devil has gotten you one tick off on the compass, right? He's gotten you one degree off because that's what we should be striving for is perfection. Just because we're not going to get there doesn't mean we don't try. But that's, again, not the primary reason that this narrative is here. More importantly than all of that is a reminder that it is finished. When we mess up, look back to Jesus when we struggle, look back to Jesus because he didn't mess up and he didn't struggle with sin. Yes, he was tempted, but he did not struggle with sin issue after sin issue after sin issue. When things are going great, still look to Jesus. And when it seems too hard and you just want to give up, look to Jesus as the one who did not give up, even when it was much harder than whatever it is we are going through at any given time. Remembering this is key here. If you, if you remember anything, I know the prostitute thing you're going to remember, but hopefully this is the second thing that you remember. We must remember that no matter how good you get at resisting sin, no matter how good you get at being holy, no matter how good you get at making your kids obey, making uh, your, your marriage great, making your life look as much like Jesus as you can, no matter how good you get at resisting sin, we have no hope whatsoever if Jesus did not first resist all sin. We have to get that. And that is what this picture, this narrative, this story is reminding us of. So yes, fight the good fight. Yes, finish the race. 
but remember that it is Jesus' fight that saves. It is Jesus' race that wins. It is Jesus' defeat of Satan that lasts. And it is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that offers us eternal life. Not our attempts at holiness, no matter how good at it we get. See, this temptation narrative was not a declaration of war, but a decree of victory. See, this king that stepped down from his throne has won this war. He wins it for us so that we may enjoy the spoils of war forever with him. May we be reminded of that today. May we go from this place marveling at such a king who would step down into this mess of a life, struggle like we struggled, go through pains like we went through pains, go through life like we go through life, yet perfect, so that these lowly peasants who were not perfect can enjoy those spoils. We can enjoy the victory and out of our abundance, may we offer that same spoils of war. May we offer the same abundance to others. We must realize that everyone in this world is trying to set up a temporary kingdom. And we must go and remind them that this king has already won the war. And he has set up an eternal kingdom. And he is inviting you into that one. You don't have to build your own kingdom. He's already set one up. May we marvel at this king this morning. May we truly remember that God is our father. We're going to sing songs that point us to that exact truth this morning. But may we go from this place remembering that God is our father. He provides for us. And in that provision, he provided us a way. And that way is Jesus. And he is the only way. If you are in this place today and you do not have a relationship with Jesus, please, please, please come talk to somebody who does before you leave. He can save you in this moment, and I pray that he does. If you do have a relationship with Jesus, if he has fought this battle for you and you have placed your faith in him, then may we sing to the top of our lungs this morning that God has done that work in us. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just come to you this morning thanking you.